Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have artist and professor Brent Everett Dickinson. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the April 28th CLT 10 is coming up. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, thrilled today to have Brent Dickinson with us. Uh, Brent is an artist, the first artist we've had on the program. Brent, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Brent, tell us a bit about your academic background uh, and how you came to be an artist. When does a tree become a tree? Uh, <laughs> no, I like I've I've. I've been making artwork ever since I was like, maybe pre-verbal. Like I've been making drawings and doodling forever. It's always been a mode of thinking and making for me. I grew up with an artist mother. We would do these really wonderful things of like sitting in front of each other, drawing each other, right? It was like a way that she and I significantly bonded. Um, but I didn't have my my mother has now actually risen in her career to to be quite successful. Um, back then she was she was not public facing in her work and and I didn't I mean growing up in suburban New Jersey I had no models of what I like I had a sense that there were artists at one time in the world, but I don't know any I don't know how one is an artist. I don't know how, how one becomes an artist. Is there like a license that one needs to acquire to, <laughs> to be a practice, to like hang your shingle out, like to become an artist? I, I don't, I didn't know. Um, I had a very important high school art teacher who was my kind of lifeline to that world and really steered me, um, steered me in a, in a particular direction. Um, and, and that was, that was my kind of first, uh, kind of forward movement of, of being able to work under, under this guy, Gerald Applebaum, uh, props to him. I, I don't know if he's still with us. I, he was very late in his career when I was a, a, a student with him. I did bounce around just a little bit because I'm an, I was an inquisitive kid and wasn't totally sure that where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So for a, for a couple of years, I studied theology and biblical studies at a small little Bible college uh, in, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, took a year off um, and traipsed around Europe looking at classical artwork um, uh, for, for about a year with my backpack, just me and my backpack, and then eventually landed in, in art school. And so I went to two tremendous um, art schools. Uh, one was a proper art school, meaning there was no, like everyone who was there was uh, uh, in a creative, creative field in some capacity. 
um, with the smallest amount of kind of humanities. I mean, it was definitely uh, undershadowed by studio art and design classes and things like that. And then I did my graduate. So I, I did my undergrad at the Maryland Institute College of Art, which I can't say enough good things about MICA is its uh, acronym, MICA. Yeah. Um, and, then, um, and then I did my graduate work at Yale University, which was then a very, I mean, that's a very different context, right? Because that is now a school that is enormous. There's people who are, you know, doing astrophysics and, and, um, and gender studies and actual rocket scientists, you know, as well as this very thriving school of art. Um, um, art education is, is a very interesting and, and rich one. Art making is about the future. It's about seeing a lump of clay or seeing an empty canvas and a box of paints and say, and thinking about the potentiality of those crude materials. But it's also uh, looking backward at artists who've come before and thinking about the way that the whatever future artwork comes from your hand is within a flow, a conversation with the work that's come before it. So this year you have backpacking around Europe. Is there was there one particular maybe moment or a day where you uncovered a piece of classical art that maybe you've never seen before that's particularly memorable for you? So, so one of like the biggest experiences is if. Um, if any of your listeners had to had to endure an art history class of sitting in a darkened room trying to fight off sleep um, because their the classroom looks way too much like their bedroom at night, like dark <laughs> with like a with a warm light coming from in, from the front of the room. Um, one of the biggest shifts in seeing all artwork, whether it's contemporary or, um, or, or classical, is the scale shift, is seeing a thing as it actually is. Artwork is always made based on the body of the, of the viewer in mind. So whether it's a teeny little artwork or a massive artwork like Michelangelo's David in Florence, entering into the space with that artwork with your own body and your own sense of scale and having that scale uh, questioned is is a is the is the tremendous experience of of seeing art in person rather than a projected disembodied image on a wall. There's a little chapel that was whose ceiling was painted uh, Giotto in uh, it's the Scrivenji um, chapel in Padova. And uh, that was like one of the encounters that was really just absolutely mind blowing. It's not as famous uh, a, 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 a work of art, but man, it is such a gorgeous, out of the way, little beautiful gem. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's one that comes to mind. So it's kind of crazy to think now, I've known you for over 15 years. Of course, we connected in 2004 at the Village Church in Manhattan. It's uh, not been that long. How it could it has. possibly be We're that old. long? We're really old at this Jeez. point. Uh, but I, I have really great memories. We actually painted an apartment together as, as Aaron and I were moving in and had our first uh, baby coming. Uh, and, and as we were painting, we had just great talks for a, a few days. I, I was amazed by your thoughtfulness about philosophy and theology. Um, and I, I want to pick your brain about this here for a bit, because typically this is what we do on the Anchor podcast. We, we love the great books. We love philosophy. We love education. Um, I, I really want to talk about this connection though, between philosophy and art, uh, especially as it pertains to modern art. 
the commingling of ideas and objects has has always been a really important thing to me. I mean, I, I've never studied philosophy in any kind of um, formal way. Uh, I do spend a lot of time reading philosophy and theology, kind of weird theology these days. But my my background, as I said, is all art education. and And in those contexts, the humanities for sure took second fiddle to the the studio portion of our of our studies. So my story is actually one of one of self education, and I've it's that self education has actually been really important to me because, like I said, I've always really been interested in the way that the world of ideas has always shaped the world of art objects. And I would say that there's lots of examples of, of the way that art objects and the way that they project into possible futures, the way that they allow us to imagine, right? Like the, the creation of a painting is essentially the creation of a world. Mm. And what does that world consist of, right? And it, 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 can, it can be a means of thinkers projecting themselves into possible outcomes, right? Science fiction, uh, which I'm a very big fan of, uh, is is exactly a, a tool in which we and the best of our kind of creative creative writers and filmmakers and and painters imagine a world that is not, but a world that could be, and it allows us to then shape our thinking about either making that world or utilizing that as a as a cautionary tale. Like that's not the world we want. We want this world, right? And so, and so the ways that that art objects shape ideas and 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 ideas shape art objects has always been a, one that's fascinating, super important to me. And so, as I've as I've kind of self educated, those ideas have just become more and more important. Uh, I've just released a big project that is very very philosophical, and and so it's it is a product of me boning up on the world of ideas spread across the landscape. But, it, but I, I think about it this way. This is a, not, the, not a perfect metaphor for this kind of co-shaping, co, co-creating or co, co-mingling of these two forces. Um, I've always lived in coastal areas. Like I, I was just thinking about this the other day. Like I grew up in coastal New Jersey. Some might call that the Jersey Shore. <laughs> um, but but also living most of my life, as you as you referenced, in New York City, which most people don't think of as a beach town, but it surely is a beach town. Um, and now that I live in uh, Southern California, I've always loved the moment where the water meets the land. And out here in, in SoCal, um, all up the coast of California, there are these amazing landscapes that are formed by the sturdiness of the land, meeting the, the dynamics of the water. And those two things work together to form, to form shapes, to form contours, to form these, these amazingly beautiful, rich things that are only operating at the at this kind of interstitial moment. The land forms the water, shapes the water in a sense. And the water, because of its, its tremendous force and dynamics, uh, shapes the land. And that's a, it's a thing that I sometimes talk about with my students of, of finding ways of letting ideas really shape your artwork and, and vice versa. Brent, as you know, here at CLT, we're deeply connected to the folks in the classical renewal movement. 
Uh, and within this classical renewal movement, you know, there's a focus on returning uh, education to a focus on the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, and this focus on beauty in particular, it's manifest in music programs, in poetry, uh, even in the architecture uh, of these schools. Um, but I think many within this movement, uh, they look at modern art actually as a turning away from beauty and often turning told towards uh, the vulgar. Um, how would you respond to this argument that contemporary art has lost sight of objective beauty? How has it lost sight of objective beauty? It's a, it's a really good question that we could spend uh, quite a long time deep into the night. I mean, it's, it's 8.30 in the morning here in Los Angeles as we record this, and we could, we could certainly uh, you know, watch the sun go down, continuing to talk about it, because here's the thing. It's complicated right? Beauty is complicated. If any of your listeners, and probably they have, because you have a, I'm sure you have a sophisticated listenership. Uh, Kant has some really complicated things to say about beauty. And that splits between the sublime uh, and the beautiful. And in both cases, where the sublime is a kind of reaction to beauty that actually invokes some terror in us, right? Mm. Actually invokes, it, it upsets us. It's, it's, the, it's the response to massive sh scale shifts, like I was talking about before of like encountering an artwork in person um, and, and the smallness of us, of, of our own body is now all of a sudden set into a scale of a world that's quite large. That could that could easily snuff us out. So so sublime is like is the reaction of standing on a on a cliff's edge and watching the pounding shoreline. And even though our body is absolutely safe, whether we're whether we're behind a a security fence or we're just standing far enough from the cliff's edge where we're not we we're not in danger of falling off of it. But yet we have a we have a a response to it that's involuntary and it's in our gut. It's in the deepest part of us, right? But then beauty, according to Kant at least, is very relative. It's very subjective because it is not only in the eye of the beholder, which is something that a lot of a lot of people people used to talk about the the supreme subjectivity of of beauty. But in Kant's mind, and other people who kind of pick up on what Kant has to say, is that, is that beauty is always in the interrelationship between the viewer and the viewed, the observer of the beautiful thing and the beautiful thing itself. Where then does the beauty lie? Is it, uh, Stephen Shavira has an has a article from 2002, I think, where I think the title is something, Beauty Lies in the Eye. Because I think he's he's also talking about that it lies to our eye. Not only not only does it reside in our eye, but it is this kind of interrelationship, right? And therefore, where does the beauty actually exist in? Is it only in our mind, or is it in the way that an object and us form an event? And that is how I would how I would characterize it. Beauty is not an object. Beauty is an event. It, it requires a, a, a seeing eye and an assembly of things in front of that eye that for whatever reason, and Kant would strongly suggest that it's, it's not on the level of cognition. It's not, a, it's not a thing that one could actually make a case for, right? Like, I think my wife is absolutely beautiful, but I don't know that I can make a case for why you should agree with me. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, if, if we can't actually make a case for it, then there's absolutely no, no, no actual objectivity. There's no, there's no objective beauty out there, I would say. Um, and so, so one, of, one of the complications with talking, so there's, there's two ways that I'd love to kind of think, uh, kind of puzzle this out a little bit. One is um, the, the, way that, the way that notions of classical renewal, which is not a movement that I'm very aware of, what often it seems like people mean when they talk about the renewal of the classics, Often it's 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 utilized to 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 invoke a kind of conservative approach to being in the world, um, and by conservative, let me say what I mean by that is built into the word, right? The notion of conserving the the conservation of that which is which is precious, that which is important, right? The yeah. slowing down of the process of the of the water coming in and ripping the the California shoreline to pieces, mm-hmm. right? Slowing that process down, conserving that which is important in our in our Western heritage. Often it's it's meant to invoke a Western heritage mm-hmm. and not a kind of transglobal heritage. Um, and so, and and often because now all of a sudden we have a kind of not just a worldview or a way of thinking and being in the world, but also a kind of avenue into politics. Often, right, this this idea of a kind of Western Western values or Western Western civilization is often used as a as a cudgel or as a motivator to mobilize a conservative base into a culture war um, operation. So one of the problems that that I have as an art maker who's making work in a contemporary setting and who's looking toward a future that is open and full of possibility, I can't stand culture wars. I think I think when a culture war is established and the battlegrounds are laid and and et cetera, I think that everybody loses. And and just to just to I don't want to go on and on here, but the when when the culture war when when culture warring happens, it it for sure is useful on both sides and both sides propagate it, right? So so conservatives tend to say right these evil leftists are coming to to erode and destroy all that you hold dear take up arms against your against against these infiltrators um these these degenerate uh <laughs> infiltrators um but on the left it's also a really useful useful mobilizer to say that even just like invoking the 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 term degenerate is exactly the term that the Nazis used to talk about Jewish artwork, queer artwork, black artwork. It, it is a it 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 is often used in the hand of of a of a kind of ultra right to talk about the other. I do know, as somebody who's lived a little while, straddling um, what often is a fairly conservative, both politically and culturally, world of of faith and and often a very progressive world of the arts is that 
is that these culture wars often everybody loses because nobody gets what they wind, wind up wanting because, because we are then a, a kind of divided place. Um, and so the, uh, there's, a, there's a term that I, that, I, that I grabbed a hold of that's actually from, uh, was, was, was invented by James Joyce um, that, I, that I found to be so tremendously helpful when thinking about these things, these conversations that often get all of our backs up and our dukes up and ready to fight these things out. Um, and his term is, is chaosmos. So chaosmos in Joyce's idea is in Joyce's mind is, is a, is a, is a hybrid, is a hybrid word that, that has in equal parts chaos and cosmos, right? Cosmos being, being an ordering of things Chaos being uh, uh, the introduction of dynamics that perhaps when left un, unmitigated or untethered will, will rip apart, will, will volatilize. But these two things together is, I think, a, a, a really useful way of thinking about the production of culture and the, and the sustaining of culture, right? Even the Western culture, because one way of thinking about the Western culture is is that it is the it has produced all of these great works but western culture is also exactly the disagreement with those classical works right mm -hmm. it is the it is the further kind of interrogation and production of new ideas that challenge the old ideas and so therefore it is a there is a, there are dynamics within western culture which is like in some ways exactly what separates us from from other cultures, that we are constantly in conversation, creating the new, creating, creating new products, new cultural items, new thoughts, new conversations that yield more new, more new, more new. But it is it is standing within the context of the kind of great works that that are a feature and a product of this necessary kind of volatility. And so then chaosmos is one that says, I actually need my conservative brothers and sisters to, to admire, to love to pieces, the classics, to conserve these things mm. as a kind of necessary bedrock that then allows, allows my progressive lefty <laughs> chaos agent brothers and sisters of which I am a part of uh -huh. to, to adequately kind of move and produce the new within, within constraints. And those constraints being all the, all the, all the things that come before me. I have never heard it put like that. That is really powerful. You know, we CLT sometimes I think we're, we're viewed as, as just a bunch of broad conservatives in reality, you know, what we're trying to defend is, is a, conservative in terms of education. So we, we identify as educational conservatives. We've got a number of people on our staff who love the mission and vision of CLT who are about as far to the left politically as you could get. Um, and so that, that idea of education, though, that we're, we're passing down this body of knowledge, uh, I love the way that you refer to this, is like the, there has to be this bedrock. And it was, it was a delight a few weeks ago having Cornell West on the program where he, he talked about 
the, the need to preserve great works. Brent, it has been a delight, sir, uh, to reconnect with you. So thank you for your time. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. 